podcast that explores the book of Common Prayer as a manual for living out our lives. My name is Father Tyler Richards, and I am joined here with Father Joshua Nelson as we continue our exploration of the 1979 book of Common Prayer. Good morning, Father Joshua. Good afternoon, Father Tyler. Oh, yes, indeed. And like we were in the first episode, we are two priests that are separated by time zones. <laughs> I'm sure we're separated by a whole lot more than time zones. Well, but there's that. We'll go with that for now. How are things in the Ohio River Valley? They're awfully wet. It's been raining quite a bit here. It almost makes one think of soggy old England, eh? Oh, well, uh, having just returned from there, there was nothing soggy about England, which was part of the problem. Uh, <laughs> having I spent the last, uh, spent the well week before last in England, and Monday and Tuesday were a balmy 102 to 104 degrees in England, and that is a country where, according to the New York Times, only five percent of British households have aircon. Not air conditioning, mind you, air con. They're very clear about what they call it there. So jolly old England was jolly, but it was also jolly hot. So I'm not sure jolly is the word that would be used there, but we'll keep it PG for the kiddies well, at home. Well, when you check into your hotel room, they give you your door key and a mop. So uh, uh, nothing to be done in terms of keeping it cool there. Um Anyway, I was there for a gathering called the uh, a residential for the sodality of Mary, Mother of Priests. It is an Anglo-Catholic order of uh, Anglican clergy. It's all of us who claim the Anglican communion, the Anglican heritage, of which the Episcopal Church is a part of that, despite what some at the Lambeth Conference might be saying about us. Um, and uh, we were there gathered around prayer and exploring what it was to be holy priests, which is something I'm still working on very clearly. So <laughs> as are all of us. So what are we talking about today, Father Tyler? Well, today on our episode, I thought, and Father Joshua thought, that we would take a crack at Eucharistic prayers, as that is the next thing on the list. Um if you open thunder in the background, <laughs> I was about to say, I'll have to check my sound effects bank for that. Uh, <laughs> but if you were following along at home and you would like to open your prayer book to page 400, it might take some searching because 400 is not one of those pages that the prayer book just naturally falls open to. <laughs> that is, that is correct. You'll have to move your ribbons out of your way and uh, crack the spine a little bit to get those pages to fall apart if they haven't been glued together by use over the years. But what we have on page 400 is something that's a little bit that's instructive for our purposes it also acts as a guide for those that wish to endeavor to delve into the discipline, and I will use that word intentionally, discipline of writing their own Eucharistic prayer. Um, but what you see on page 400 and page 401 is the basic layout of everything that is included in a Eucharistic prayer. And as you see at the rubric uh, about halfway down the page on page 400, it says that the, this rite requires careful preparation by the priest and other participants. 
and it is not intended for use at the principal Sunday or weekly celebration of the Holy Eucharist. So if one were going to use this guide in order to write your own Eucharistic prayer, it would not be something that you would use on a Sunday morning. But it is a good thing for us within the context of this podcast and those listening at home just to look over as a framework for how our standard Eucharistic prayers are laid out. And so we, we, see, we see there that what you have is, is um, the beginning of, of the rite and the way that the prayer book labels it is the people and the priest. We gather in the Lord's name. And so this is where you would see the salutation that we talked about in the last episode. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we would have the Gloria or the Trisagion. Um, Kyrie. The Kyrie right here. And then you would go into the proclamation and response to the word of God. Um, your Old Testament lesson, your psalm your epistle or your New Testament lesson, and then the gospel reading, and then a sermon, and then a, following... A sermon, which in this case, the sermon and the psalm, those act as responses right. to the reading. Right. Um, this particular form doesn't expressly lay out the need for the creed here, um, because it is not the principal service of worship, you don't necessarily have to include the creed at a service that is not the principal worship service for the week. And it instead moves on to praying for the world and the church. In our last episode, we talked about the prayers of the people and the necessary elements that are included in praying the prayer, the prayers of the people. Um, and then it moves directly into exchanging the peace. And so Having having covered all of that, what we get ready for today is the next step, which is preparing the table, making Eucharist, breaking the bread, and sharing the gifts of God. So we're going to then dive right into uh, our Eucharistic prayers. There are four different standard Eucharistic prayers. These are the ones that would be used in Rite 2 on at the principal service on a Sunday, maybe a Saturday night, but the principal service of the week um, where Eucharist is celebrated and shared and you have Eucharistic prayers A, B, C, or D. And these begin on page 361. It's, it's important here that we point out that while all Eucharistic prayers are created equal, not all Eucharistic prayers are the same. Before we started recording today, Father Joshua and I were having a little bit of conversation about the different uh, the differences that are, exist inside of the Eucharistic prayers. And for our purposes, we've decided to refer to prayers A, B, and D as the synoptic prayers to make Eucharist. And that's because prayers A, B, and D follow a very similar structure. Now, all of you liturgy nerds out there are going to want to take notes uh, as we as we throw some names at you, but there are two forms that are present inside of the prayer book, and there is a form that is Western Syrian. There is a form that is Roman Alexandrian. We're not going to delve way down deep into those, just, just as a way of pointing out that there are two structures that are present inside of our Eucharistic prayers. And, that these, are, and these are ancient structures. 
and these are ancient structures um, that literally some of the earliest forms of our Eucharistic prayers are based off of these two structures, Western Syrian and Roman Alexandrian, and that both of those forms exist inside of our prayer book because both of those forms have existed throughout the history of Christian worship. Um, and so if you if you flip through A and prayer A and prayer B, you're going to say, okay, well, those two really look similar. And then you look at prayer C and you're like, wait a minute, what on earth are we doing on page 369? Um, and you make it through prayer C and then you get to prayer D. You're like, wait, prayer D looks like prayer A and B. There's a reason for that. Um, prayer A and B are pretty distinctly what we would call sort of a Western style prayer. Um, prayer D is a prayer that is of all of the prayers regarded as the most ecumenical kind of Eucharistic prayer. It also harkens back to our ties to our Orthodox sisters and brothers who use a prayer, who use a form of prayers like prayer D in their weekly celebration of the Holy Eucharist. So it it not only roots us deeply into our own tradition as as Anglicans, but it also roots us into sort of our ecumenical roots as to what all of Christianity, that is Christianity that is regularly celebrating the Holy Eucharist, the way that they're doing that. And it is worth saying that it's a good reminder that for the period of about a millennia, we were one church. Oh, yeah, I can't say it enough. In fact, um, people talk about the Catholic Church, and automatically our minds go to um, Francis and Benedict XVI and the Curia and the Vatican and all of those ideas. But the Catholic Church being something that is instead universal, um, that being our share in the Catholicity of the church, the universality of the church. And like Father Josh was saying, for the first thousand years, we were all pretty much on the same page. And then there was a little disagreement about who the Pope was supposed to be and how all of that was determined. And um, the, the Catholic Church split um, into the Roman Catholic Church, into the churches that would eventually evolve out to be the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Syrian Orthodox Church, um, and and so on and so forth. So you get the Byzantine churches, and then you get the the churches that fall into connection with the Roman Catholic Church. Which, and it is important to say, these are not different denominations within the Eastern Church. These are just regional um, peculiarities. Right, right. Um it's not like in the Western church where we have the Quakers, the Bakers, the candlestick makers. These are just re- like the regional churches. We have determined that since these three, A, B, and D, are so similar in form, we're going to focus our attention today onto Eucharistic Prayer B. That's through page 367. And Eucharistic Prayer B we've chosen because in our experience— throughout the the wider Episcopal Church, this is the one that is most familiar to people. Prayer prayer A is is used pretty is also used pretty regularly. Prayer C is is used. Uh, 
there's I'm some debate right now. So um, there's some debate about how widely and how commonly it is used. Prayer D tends to get trotted out for particularly high holy days, Christmas, Easter. Uh, I tend to try and use it at baptisms, um, but mostly we're looking at at prayer A and B with B probably having a slight edge over A just slightly. Yeah. So as we actually move into the exploration of this, we're going to be talking about things that are present in all of the Eucharistic prayers that are present inside of the Book of Common Prayer. We're going to be talking about the opening dialogue, the section that deals with praise and thanksgiving, the sanctus, the institution narrative, the memorial acclamation, the anamnesis, that anamnetic moment, which you don't get to say anamnetic moment very often in life. Um, the oblation, the epiclesis, uh, the supplications, the doxology, and the people's great amen. And don't worry, we're going to get into some of what of all of this is and where we are in the prayer when we're talking about it. But the first place to start is the best place to start. ABC? Or one, two, three. Oh, okay. And maybe even do, re, me. Okay, good. Um, But there is no doe a deer a female deer in the eucharistic prayers not in this version anyway sorry um but we begin with a portion of 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 this opening dialogue that is called the sursum corda father joshua what does the phrase sursum corda mean to you means lift up your hearts lift up your hearts corda corda heart as as the uh as the world-renowned Marion Hatchett writes in his commentary on the American prayer book, the dialogue follows echo or the dialogue following echoes Jewish forms of blessing. Lift up your hearts was a command to stand, the normal posture for prayers of thanksgiving, a posture which fosters and signifies the participation of the congregation in the action the appropriate posture for public prayer shared by those who had been raised in baptism. So literally the Sursum Corda is not only a a symbolic lifting up of our hearts to God, offering ourselves, our souls and bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. Whoops, that's right, one language. But it's literally, hey, y'all stand up. And Mm. so we, we lift ourselves up to pray. And so we have the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts, literally, serve the Porta. And then the phrase, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, which Marion writes is is the celebrant's request for permission to offer thanks in the name of those present. And the response of it is right to give him thanks and praise is the people offering their consent for that thanksgiving to take place so here the priest is is conducting ourselves themselves in the traditional role of the priest looking back to our jewish ancestors saying i'm going to the altar to offer up the prayers to offer up your prayers and thanksgivings to god do i have your permission and and these elements, this sursum corda, this beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, is something that dates back um, as far as the time when many Eucharistic prayers were extemporaneous. 
So there mm. does exist a time in, in our history when the priest, the celebrant, the, the presbyter, or the bishop would have been offering this, this prayer of thanksgiving, and they would have been, for better or worse, winging it. <laughs> um, and so, but, but the Sersum Corda and also the great Amen at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, uh, Marian writes, has been, been around since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and we have some interesting uh, rubrics here, and I wonder if we can go into a little bit of this. This has to do with our with posture. So we already said that the Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts, means standing, because stand up, we stand for prayers of thanksgiving, that's traditional. But then the rubric says, then facing the holy table, the celebrant proceeds. Yeah, so one of the things that we don't really engage with much in the church is which way it is that the celebrant is standing. Um, we have to remember that there was a time in the church when it was common for a priest to have uh, his back, um, and it would eventually become what we have now, his or her back, to the congregation. Facing the yeah, facing the altar, if you can imagine such a thing, um, as opposed to the way that we do it now called versus populus, where the priest is actually facing the people. And the reason for this, this posture is, is that what is understood, and we talked about this some in the exploration of the Sersum Corda, this first part of the Eucharistic prayer, the priest is there offering this offering this sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise on behalf of everyone who is there present. Mm -hmm. And so literally the priest is standing between the throne of God and his or her people. And so we face the table as we're offering this, this sacrifice up to God. A good way um, to think about this is when Moses interceded and, and Moses would go in and turn his face toward God in the tent while the people were outside, right? Um, right. So there's that there's that conversation piece. This is between the priest and God on behalf of the people, and the priest being one of the people. Correct. Um, Michael Ramsey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, once wrote that it is the role of the priest to stand in the presence of God with his people on his heart, and that is exactly what we are doing here. The mm -hmm. priest is standing in the presence of God with his or her or their people on their hearts. Um, and so the rubric here imagines a situation where the Sursum Corda would be said, and then the priest would turn, face the altar with hands extended up in that funny pose that priests hold called the Oron's position, which is a posture of prayer to signify that they are praying on behalf of all of the people and begin to offer offer this um, offer this this part of the prayer, which we call the praise and thanksgiving. It's the doxological, the praise part of this prayer. It yeah. is a right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And prayers A and B imagine what's called a preface. In fact, you see that in the next rubric down. A proper preface is sung or said on all Sundays and on other occasions as appointed. And so if you take your prayer book and you flip to... Um, hold your finger at 367. 
Correct. Don't don't let me get away from you. Um, exactly. If you flip to page 377, you begin to see these proper prefaces popping up. Proper prefaces popping up. Um, um, <laughs> prefaces for the Lord's Day. Preface of God the Father, of God the Son, on page 378. Of God the Holy Spirit. Each season of the church has a proper preface. Advents, um, Christmas, or the Incarnation. Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, Ascension, and Ascension Tide, Pentecost, prefaces for other occasions on page 380, Trinity Sunday, All Saints Day. When you're observing the feast of a particular saint, there is a proper preface for that. If that saint happens to be an apostle or you happen to be doing the Eucharistic prayer at an ordination, there is a preface for that. Dedication of the church, baptism, marriage, and commemoration of the dead. Well, and they well, all. Sorry? So I, I understand what marriage and the dedication of a church and baptism is. What does it mean, commemoration of the dead? So the commemoration of the dead is also that preface that gets used on a day like All Souls Day, the ending of our fall triduum. Um, and then also, this is the preface that gets used as funerals. And if we look at it, we can see how it how it points to the resurrection themes that are present inside of the funeral rite. We're working a little bit ahead here, but we can see the structure that is common in the preferences. We've said in our prayers, it is a right and good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and each preface has a different take on this, but here we go with, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who rose victorious from the dead, comforts us with the blessed hope of everlasting life. For to your faithful people, O Lord, life is changed, not ended. And when our mortal body lies in death, there is prepared for us a dwelling place eternal in the heavens. So what the preface does is it orients us to a particular occasion, to a particular season, to particular ideas that we as a parish congregation are reflecting on in a particular point in our journey together as Christians. Mm -hmm. Right now, your priest is either using, is probably using um, prefaces from the Lord's Day for God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, but fear not, because Advent is not far off. Uh, <laughs> and every church musician and every priest and every parish administrator around the world just let out a collective shudder because the great purple season will be upon us soon. You mean, you mean sarum blue, but continue. Purple, blue, you know, wherever you are on the color spectrum, it's fine. <laughs> We respect the dignity of every human being, Father Joshua, and their color palettes. I am I am glad that you respect me. Uh, but let's take a look at that, that because that is the next big one that comes up. So uh, we can do the, say, Advent. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, because you sent your beloved Son to redeem us from sin and death 
and to make us heirs in him of everlasting life, that when he shall come again in power and great triumph to judge the world, he we may without shame or fear rejoice to behold his appearing. This doesn't sound like Christmas language, Father Tyler. Isn't that what Advent's about? Oh, my goodness. So we'd have to go back to the beginning of the podcast and talk about all of the different elements that are present inside of the church calendar and the themes that are picked up. But we often forget that Advent means the coming, that the Advent is the bringing about of something, that the Advent... Go ahead. It It is pointing us toward the second coming of Christ. The eschatological um, reality of the coming of the kingdom of God into the world. Yes. Um, so all that to say, if you are using A, B, or well, A or B, and a proper preface is used, pay really close attention to that each Sunday and, and let it kind of wash over you and set you up for the rest of the service. And so having having... Having sursumed your corda, <laughs> and, and ha- yeah, um, and having prayed your preface that is proper, or you have properly prefaced what it is that you're doing, we move into the next part of this called the sanctus, which is introduced by this great word "therefore," which covers all manner of sins. Therefore, we praise you because of everything that we've already heard before. It is because of what we have just talked about. Because of those things, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. And here in this part of the the, the service, we have the Sanctus, um, the Holy, 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 this particular line of scripture is pulled straight out of the prophet Isaiah, who mm-hmm. when Isaiah is having this vision of the throne room of God in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the hem of his robe filled the whole temple and the angels cried back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of the glory And the pivots on the threshold shook at the voice of those who cried. It's my favorite piece of scripture. That's why I know it so well. He's not reading this off of anything. Um, But uh, this is one of my favorite, one of my favorite points in the whole Eucharist. Because this is the point for me that heaven and earth meet. Mm. Because therefore we praise you joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, the saints of future and saints of past, everything eschatologically, everything all comes down to this pivot point. And we all say, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Um, I, I think the weight of that is lost on a lot of people. But if you you think about that, all coming together, all happening at once. Well, and if you you really think about the roots of this passage, then we are all Isaiah standing there having this vision of the throne room of God. And we are all standing there together as heaven has come near to us. 
Mm-hmm. And and we're seeing the throne room of God. And if you have enough incense in your sanctuary at this point, one could almost imagine that they are in the throne room of God because the the cloud of the glory of God has filled up your worship space and, and there is a heavenly perfume permeating the air. And yes, I am pontificating about incense in church and somewhere I can feel it. There it is, an asthmatic clutching their pearls, going, please, no incense in my church. And sisters and brothers, I feel you, but there is a place in my heart that is firmly fixed for incense. There, There is no incense around them, but somebody is listening to this point in the podcast and starts coughing. Coughing. <laughs> This this next line is also the hint that that we are being called to be Isaiah in, in what we are being asked to do. This line, blessed is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. In this passage from Isaiah, the Lord cries out, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds with that great acclamation, here am I, send me. Also, the one who comes in the name of the Lord is also thought to refer to Jesus, who is the one who is coming to to be the Lord. Um, because this language, the Lord. this language should be pointing us back or forward, whichever way you think in the calendar, to um, the triumphal entry to Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. when Jesus rides in on a donkey and all the people proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I think it's important here to remind us, I don't remember if we've talked about it earlier on the podcast or we will eventually. Um, I think we did with with Palm Sunday and all that. But Hosanna means save us. So may our our salvation is in the highest. May our salvation come. We have not talked about that previously on the podcast, um, even when we were doing Palm Sunday. Um, but but that is that is a good point. Is that this cry out for Hosanna isn't just an isn't just a call of jubilation? It's also a, a call for aid. Hosanna in the highest. Save us as much as you possibly can. Um, and so then we we move into. We move into the next portion of the prayer, at which point the people may either stand or kneel. Um, oftentimes, I wait to listen for what the kneelers are doing in the church before I proceed with the Eucharistic prayer, because yeah, you'll hear the you hear the crunch of bones and the creak of wood. You know, once the thunk uh, sound has <laughs> subsided, and it it is always a squeak and a thump, as as is important. Um, and I will say here, this is as you are able. If you are unable to stand or kneel for health for health reasons, there is nothing, this does not diminish your prayer if you are sitting and praying. Um, so this, this next portion of, of, the, of the prayers is a combination of a, um, of a memorial of, of what it is that God has done. We also get a subset of this that's called the institution narratives. But before that, we have this recounting of salvation history. And oftentimes... All the way back. All, all the way back. The, Speaking of starting back at the beginning being a very good place to start, we, we see here in Eucharistic Prayer B that the celebrant on behalf of the people 
is offering thanks to God for the goodness and love which has been made known to us in creation. That doesn't mean the the oak tree that is sitting out there on the corner of your lot specifically. It doesn't mean the blue sky and the waters that flow specifically. It's also talking to that first beginning moment of everything that is and was and ever shall be that you have made known to us in creation, as in in creating this world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Which includes our sisters and brothers. Correct. Um, So it is both creation as we experience it now, but it also refers to creation as the generative act through which God has created the heavens and the earth with all of the mysterious processes that were probably actually involved in that. We believe that it is God who set all of that into motion. In the calling of Israel to be your people, this doesn't necessarily refer to the state of Israel as much as it refers to God coming to a particular group of people at one particular point in time and saying, I will be your God and you will be my people and making a covenant with them to walk with them as God continues to come to us and walks with us and brings us into relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Um, In your words spoken through the prophets. So So this points us back again to all those times that we hear God trying to communicate with us. and, And it's important to point out here that it's not just talking about Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos and God help him, even Jonah, those modern prophets that are crying out to us to remember to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God and driving us to change and driving us to remember the least of those that walk among us. Yeah, just a few to to draw to mind. Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, um, uh, Desmond Tutu. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. And above all, in the word made flesh, Jesus, your son, of all of the things that we have to give thanks to you, above all is Jesus. For in these last days, you sent him to be incarnate from the Virgin Mary, the mystery of the incarnation to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world, the very vocation of Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. In him you have delivered us from evil and made us worthy to stand before you. Through the redemptive act of Christ, we are made worthy in the sight of God. In him you have brought us out of error into truth, out of sin into righteousness, out of death into life." These are all phrases that should hearken us back to the promises that we made in our baptismal covenants. Yes. Those those prayers that we prayed when we were in when we were getting ready to pass through the waters of baptism. These are all things that should be coming back to us as reminders of what is happening in this moment. And, and I also and, this, we could take this and lay it alongside our creed. Mm-hmm. And it, it's telling doing the same thing for us. Or alongside, uh, if you look at the great vigil of Easter and the the first part with the, the readings that we in the Psalms and responses that we get, it is a retelling of our salvation story. Mm. 
And so we transition out of this history, out of this point of salvation history into what we call the institution narratives. Now, the interesting thing about the institution narratives is that aside from tenses and phrasing, these next two paragraphs are pretty much lifted straight out of both the gospel accounts of the institution of the Holy Eucharist and also the way that St. Paul accounts for the Eucharist being um, instituted. So these these words have come to us from the very beginnings of Christian faith, mm-hmm. of the Christian church as we understand it. And they have been carried for the last 2,000 years in in our Eucharistic prayers as the sign that we're remembering why we started doing this in the first place and how yeah. it was that Jesus taught us to do this. And so we, we carry that forward for 2,000 years as we remember on the night before he died for us, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And at this this point, I should point out because of the rubrics, this is if you are in a church where the priest has his back to you or her back to you, you don't necessarily see this. Um, otherwise, you do. But at these words of institution, when we're talking about the bread, the priest is laying their hands or touching in some way the element of bread that is on the table. Either either the actual bread itself, the vessel that is contained in. Yeah. Um, and it is these two, despite all of the Oron's positions, despite all of the crossing and all of the raising of the hands in different places, these two things are the only what we call required manual acts that the priest actually lays their hand on the substance that is being consecrated at this point. Um Everything else is is uh, based on personal piety, preference, etc. Uh, you don't see priests sticking their fingers in the wine because that's icky, but we do hold up the cup. Yeah. After supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Then we have the memorial again, where we are remembering. Therefore, according to his command of father, we remember his death. We proclaim his resurrection and we await his coming in glory. As it says in the paragraphs before, do this in remembrance of me. And also in this moment, we have what is what is known as the anamnesis. It is it is not just a memorial. Isn't that like a fluid or something? (laughs) Uh, The concept of anamnesis, Father Joshua, reading directly from Marion Hatchet, Mm. is basic to Jewish Christian tradition. Anamnesis is the antithesis of amnesia. A person with amnesia has lost identity and purpose to know who you are to whom you belong and where you headed, you must remember. 
A Jew was one who through anamnesis had crossed the Red Sea and entered the promised land. The heritage and hopes of the Jewish people were the individual's heritage and hopes. An anamnesis of the mighty acts of God was basic to Jewish blessings, which reminded God of what he had done in the past, in this way also asking him to continue to act as he acted in the past. And so a Christian am, amnetic, anamnetic moment, holy crap, uh, is where we remember the death of Jesus. We proclaim his resurrection as a present reality, and we await his coming in glory when Jesus comes to us on the last day and makes all things one with him. This is and, one of those this is one and, of those metaphysical moments inside of the Eucharistic prayer where the past, the present, and the future all come collapsing down on themselves in this moment where Everyone that was, everyone that is, and everyone that ever will be is gathered around together around the table of God. And so there's this wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing that is happening right here where all of Christian reality is unified. So this is why it, it always frustrates me. Whenever the responses are this in any this way in any of the prayers. But how common are, if you're sitting in the congregation or listening to a congregation, we get to this point and you hear, we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, we await his coming in glory. Well, and because of the catechetical crisis that's existed in the church for the last 40 years, nobody knows what the Eucharistic prayers mean anymore. Yeah, that's the reason we're doing this podcast. So the next next Sunday or the next time you attend and participate in a Eucharist and it gets to that anamnetical moment, we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, we await his coming in glory. I don't care what part of the country or the world you are in, Father Tyler and I both want to hear you at that time. Because we we come into the Eucharist thinking that it's this benign thing that we do. And it's yeah. actually not. I mean, earlier, Father Joshua, when you talked about it was that it's that moment when heaven and earth collide. This is the moment where heaven and earth, past, present, and future all collide. Yeah. And this great collision of 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 Eucharistic truth with our present reality, where we're offering up to God everything that we are and everything that we have been and everything that we hope to be in hopes that the power of God will descend upon us and transform us into something that more closely resembles the living image of Christ here in the, the sermon. We're, we're not really going into transubstantiation and consubstantiation here, but this is the point where we pray that God will transform us along with the elements of bread and wine, that all of us will be transformed into the body of Christ. And if you need a more direct pointer that that is what we are doing in the Eucharistic prayer, then the next portion is your moment to perk your ears up and pay attention. And we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, O Lord of all, presenting to you from your creation this bread and this wine. We're acknowledging where everything that we've been given comes from. All good gifts come of God. And then we have the audacity and we have the courage through everything that Jesus has done, we pray you, gracious God, to send your Holy Spirit upon these gifts, that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and his blood of the new covenant. This is the point where we're asking God to send the Holy Spirit down upon the gifts to do whatever kind of substantiation is happening, because 
These are types and shadows of things that we can only vaguely understand, but we're asking the Holy Spirit to take its action upon those gifts, that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and his blood of the new covenant. We're asking that outward invisible sign to be made so that it will reveal to us an inward and spiritual truth, which is the very definition of a sacrament. And we're asking God to send the Holy Spirit to accomplish that work. This is the part of this is we can't do that. That's why this is a mystical moment, not a magical moment. Correct. It's far more real than magic. Um, this is the part of the service that that we refer to as the epiclesis, that the spirit is is descending upon. The, the epa meaning um, around, klesis the the coming. The, the arrival, epiclesis, the arrival of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts. And then it is this next part, moving out, out beyond magic and delving deep into the mystical moment of this, looking back to, as I said, we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, and we wait his coming in glory, because along with the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, we too are transformed in some mystical way by the Holy Spirit. As we continue on page 369, unite us to your son in his sacrifice that we may be acceptable through him, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ and bring us to that heavenly country where with all your saints, we may enter the everlasting heritage of your sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church and the author of our salvation. Not only is Christ the first of creation and the author of our salvation, but we too in this moment, because of Christ's sacrifice and the Holy Spirit's acting to make us acceptable with him, through him, we too are part of that mystical body of Christ. And it's something that we we engage with on a conceptual level, but I'm not sure many of us actually accept as present reality. Yeah, no, because then we don't be walking around just dumbfounded. Well, and I would be fine if more people would walk around dumbfounded. It would lend to a greater level of silence in the world. But <laughs> not not just that, but the fact that it would change the way that we do walk around in the world. Yes, that the way that we present ourselves, the way that we act with others, the way we interact with all of creation. That that I am a cell and you are a cell and the person next to us are all cells in the great body of Christ. Yeah. Or we're eyes or ears or mouths or feet or whatever image that you want to draw from, from, from Pauline theology to describe your place in the body of Christ we're all in the same house folks we're all we're all part of the same the same structure you mean even baptists even the baptists even even our, our jewish cousins all people have been created in the image of god and we mm. need to remember that we are walking around with those people uh in 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 that present reality um, and there is so much in that last paragraph that you could dive into about in the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ. 
remembering that it is not a kingdom, a single, it is not a, a singular country, it is not a singular regime, it is not <laughs> listen, I'm Christian I'm Christ, Christian nationalism is abhorrent in the sight of God. Yes. And if you want to say the Pledge of Allegiance, I'm fine with that. But don't equate your recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance to being some kind of devotion to God. Because that's not how it works. Yeah. We are strangers in a strange land because our country is not of this world. It, it is fine to, to have a healthy level of patriotism to be proud of, of the country that one is from, so long as you understand that the country that you owe your allegiance to is the kingdom of God. That is what you have signed on for in your baptism. Christian nationalism, and I don't care who this pisses off, flies in the face of everything that we believe in Christianity. Yeah. Um, you should not worship your state. And if your state is asking you to worship it as a deity— or your state is taking steps to where the worship of the state is actually this established religion. Look back or towards you, Rome. Or you think who you're voting for is the savior sent you by might, God to make things better. You might be a Christian nationalist. And so I would, I would hold that up to you as something that you can explore the depths of your own soul about, but remember who sits on the throne. And remember who it is that you have agreed to serve. It's not going to be a human ruler. I can promise you that. Um, but we're asking all things to be put under under the kingship of Christ, un, in subjection under the kingdom of God. Um, and bring us to that heavenly country. Exactly. Bring, <laughs> make us true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And yeah. everything that that means, that we understand, and that will be revealed to us in the fullness of time. So that we may enter the everlasting heritage of your sons and daughters, so that we can all have realized identities as children of the Most High God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This all happens because of our connection to, our allegiance to, our belief in and our living out of the life that was handed on to us by Jesus Christ, our Lord. The firstborn of all creation, the one that was preexistent from the foundations of the world, the head of the church, the one that we look to, even our presiding bishop, even the Archbishop of Canterbury looks to to be the guiding light of this church as we have received it, mm -hmm. and the author of our salvation the one who made it all happen, who was willing to put his name on the line and seal his con seal that contract with his blood on the cross. By him, with him, and in him, in the wholeness of everything that Jesus is, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, we're, we're, we're zooming out here so that we see the, enti the entirety of the triune God and the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And it is at this point, the prayer having reached its apex, the prayer having been completed, that all of God's people say out together in one resounding voice, 
Amen. And that is the people ratifying. That is the people signing off and say, yes, Lord, we agree with yeah. everything that has just been said, which makes it a valid Eucharist. Amen being Soviet. And Soviet. this is why we cannot celebrate private mass. Correct. Because I can't pray that and then seal it myself. You have to be involved. You've got Amen. to sign off on it. And again, this is where I said earlier, we do the same with the Sanctus and we do the same with the, the memorial acclamation. We remember his death. You, we get to this point so often and I will try and, and, and sometime it just pours out of me by him and with him and in him and the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty father now and forever. And the people respond, amen. <laughs> no, you're, your, your clergy, your priests, and your bishops want to hear you say amen that signifies you actually believe what has just been prayed. Yeah. When you assent, and if you don't, like, actually, talk to us. If you don't it, believe it, come talk to us. We can talk about it. When you assent, could you actually assent? Yeah. <laughs> Instead yeah. of saying, yeah, sure, whatever. My tea time is at 11.15, and, you know, I've still got to go home and get my clubs out of the closet. Spare me. Yeah, brunch for a reservation, so. My God, he did go on about it today. No, spare me. If you're going to assent to something, assent to something. Um, and then you, have, you, are having, signing on, you have signed on to this, so sign on to it. Live into it. And having, having prayed the Eucharistic prayer, we continue on with the prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us to pray with the Lord's Prayer, which continues on page 364. We have the, we have the breaking of the bread, where the celebrant breaks the bread. I tend to raise the bread and break it. Everybody's got a different way of how they do it. Because the body, has, it has to be broken in order to be shared. Exactly. The bread which we break, alleluia, is the communion of the body of Christ. Be known to us, Lord Jesus, in the breaking of the bread. And so we, we break the bread as a remembrance that Christ's body was broken. And we see this in, in the language during the breaking of the bread. Alleluia, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. Again, this is where the priest is in a priestly role and offering sacrifice but on an altar, which is what priests do. And then facing the people, the celebrant says the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. It says, and may add. There should be a slight change there that said, and should add. <laughs> because I don't think that that last phrase should be, should be optional. I think we need to remember why it is that we're doing what we're doing. If you haven't caught on yet. Um, Christ died for us, and we should feed on him in our hearts. We should carry Christ within us by faith with thanksgiving. 
Now, here's an interesting rubric, which is probably, which might piss off some people. Um, but I think it's really important for us to discuss here, on, particularly on this podcast. The ministers receive the sacrament in both kinds and then immediately deliver it to the people. So why, I know in some places that, uh, Father Tyler, that the priest will give it out and then be the last person to receive. Why does the, the prayer book, why do the framers of the prayer book want the priest to receive first? So the reason that the priest receives first is because it should never be confused who the host of this meal actually is. There is this practice that pops up in some circles where the priest will commune everybody else in the room and then take last. And that's which, like which is like my grandmother feeding everybody and then eating at the end of the night. I mean, if your priest wants to go last at coffee hour, don't stop them. Um, but at the Eucharistic celebration, it needs to be understood that the priest is not the host. The priests so, themselves are also guests of the table of God. And so it's important that we be partakers just like everyone else. And really and truly, I think it's an act of convenience. We're there, the elements are present. We take first and then distribute to the people what God has given back to us. Um, but it should never it should never be done in a way that sets us up as, hey, I'm the one that's that's hosting from this table. We're just servers. Yeah, We're taking there, like everyone else. There are some, I want to say bad practices um, that I've heard of and seen where the priest reserves portions of the priest's hosts or the, the larger wafer, you might say, um, that is broken differently and reserves pieces of that for people that are in good graces or that the priest likes. Um, and, and this is something that some of the laity have come to believe. Um, yeah, no, that's just wrong. <laughs> we you have, know, I, <laughs> I, I have my little priest host. It's, you know, I, I don't know what, three and a half inches across. Um, I break it into quarters. It's me, it's my deacon, it's my acolyte, and then it's it's my lay Eucharistic minister. Those are four pieces of that host. And if I can give out four of those pieces, then I have a ciborium, a bread box, that is full, filled with a little round wafers for everybody else. Yeah, that's as far as the calculus ever goes for me. Distributing communion is, yeah. is you know, you it, don't get you don't get part of the priestess because you know you're a quote unquote favorite. Yeah, we we had the benefit we had the benefit at at Swanee of you know sharing in one bread, um, and it, and we realized that in many places because of convenience, because of economics or whatnot that the little wafers from church.com or whatever it is. Kavanaugh, yeah. Are used. Um, but the idea that that is all from one piece of bread is is the point that we're trying to make. Right. That we're it's all not, eating of, of 
the same bread. One bread, yes. Um, now, are there often questions about whether what we're eating is actually bread or not? That's neither here nor there. Um, those are the things that, you know, we we hope for, that it's yeah. actually bread. Uh, yeah. So, um, so the priest goes around and distributes the host with the words, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Um, the deacon or the lay Eucharistic minister also falls around behind the cup with, with the chalice or in the age of COVID, a intinction bowl, which may actually be more dangerous than actually drinking from the cup itself. Um, and they introduce it by saying the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, so that people understand what it is, what the elements are that they are preparing to receive, that this is, you know, through consubstantiation or transubstantiation, that it has become that which we have asked God to turn it into. Um, mm-hmm. um, while communion is happening, uh, during the communication of the people, that is the act of communion, is communicating the people. Um, hymns, psalms, or other anthems may be sung. Uh, but Father Joshua, what happens if I'm distributing communion and suddenly I have one host left and eight other people at the rail? Whatever you shall I do into, then? I break it into really small pieces and just give them a crumb. No, um, actually, this is the next rubric on page 365. When necessary, the celebrant consecrates additional bread and or wine using the form on page 408. So if you will turn there with us for those of you playing at home. And I passed it up. And I actually just had to use this the other day, but it's about midway down the page. The rubric says, uh, if the consecrated bread or wine does not suffice for the number of communicants, the celebrant is to return to the holy table and consecrate more of either or both by saying, Hear us, O Heavenly Father, and with your word and Holy Spirit, bless and sanctify this bread or wine, uh, that it also may be the sacrament of the precious body, blood of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who took bread, the cup, and said, This is my body, or this is my blood. Amen. It's a, it's a tiny, a tiny epiclesis. Or else the celebrant may consecrate more of both kinds, saying again the words of the Eucharistic prayer, beginning with the words which follow the Sanctus and ending with the invocation, in the case of Eucharistic prayer C, ending with the narrative of the institution. So you have the you have the pocket prayer. Or then you can go back and you can do the entire Eucharistic prayer all over again. I, I would bet money that most will just do the pocket prayer. <laughs> I, I think for sake of expediency, that is typically what happens. Um, yeah. Unless someone has arrived at the 11th hour and everything has been put away, it might be instructive to actually do the whole Eucharistic prayer so that Which they have the benefit yeah, which here there is a uh, a good example that I can give. I had a gentleman in my first congregation who, for health reasons, um, 
struggled to get to church on time, quote unquote. Um, but he would always he would make an effort, and often he'd come in either right at the tail end of the distribution of communion, or as we're saying, the post-communion prayer. And I would invite him to, I'd invite him to stay afterwards. And we'd sit together and we read through the gospel and we kind of discuss, uh, you know, a little sermonette basically, and then offer a form of uh, the Eucharistic prayer and commune him um, with the bread and the wine. And that was um, really, for me, those were really special moments too. So all of the people having been received, um, or having communicated, the altar party will return to the table where often it is the role of the deacon or in the absence of a deacon, um, the the vessels are cleaned up and, and whatever remains of, of the communion, if there is anything left, is often either consumed there at the table or put into the reserve sacrament, which is often in an ombre or a tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Um, hang on one second. So having done all of the washing up bits um, and the the vessels that contained the sacraments being treated with great reverence and being washed out with water and then either consumed by the priest or disposed of properly down a piscina by the altar guild during cleanup, um, the the priest then moves into the post-communion prayer. Let us pray. Eternal God, Heavenly Father, you have graciously accepted us as living members of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have fed us with spiritual food in the sacrament of his body and blood. Send us now into the world in peace and grant us strength and courage to love and serve you with gladness and singleness of heart through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. It's important to point out that in the Eucharistic prayer, it is not a, it is not, or in the, I'm sorry, in the post-communion prayer, it is not a letting us off of the hook. We've made it through the mass and, and, and now we're done. And as our Catholic brothers and sisters are fond of saying, the mass is ended, go, go forth in the name of God. And the people respond, thanks be to God. And the subtext there is, thank God it's over. (laughs) In the post-communion prayer, we're reminded of what's happened. But then we're also given a charge. Yeah. Uh, We've been been accepted as living members of of Jesus Christ. We've been fed with spiritual food and the sacrament of the body of blood. And now we are sent out into the world in peace. And we pray that God grants us strength and courage to love and to serve God with gladness and singleness of heart. Or, if you turn to page 366, Almighty and ever-living God, we thank you for feeding us of the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out 
to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. So essentially what we've said on page 365, the language is a little bit more expansive and expressive on page 366. Some churches only ever use one of those prayers. Some churches use both of those prayers interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Uh, often it's a preferential it's a preferential decision by the priest um, deciding what 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 we should be focusing on as we finish up. I mean, I, I serve two communities every Sunday, and one uses one of them, and the other uses the other. So um, I do want to point out one thing, because the way that it, traditionally Episcopalians read the prayer book, we read to the end of the line, and then break, and then read, and then break. Um, even though it disrupts the sentence structure, I'm starting to turn it to you, Father Tyler, oh dear. Uh, particularly in this second post-communion prayer. And now, comma, Father, comma, send us out to do the work you have given us to do. And here's where I think we get hung up sometimes. To love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. Instead of to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. Um, that clause just kind of gets added on, but. Well, this is also some bad punctuation use by the framers of the prayer book. This should not be a comma. This should be a colon, um, because we we give and we give a um, an infinitive as an answer to what to the work that you have given us to do. Colon to love and to serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. There is a very specific work that we have been given to do. So it, technically, it should be a colon but I'll allow it. Yeah, I'll allow it. And then we have the doxology of To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. The bishop, when present, or the priest may bless the people at this time, and oftentimes a, a blessing is given here. Again, the Book of Occasional Services allows for a variety of seasonal prayers. That's a different podcast. Um, sometimes the blessing here is admitted and or is omitted, and what is given instead is a solemn prayer over the people, specifically in Lenten, in the time of Lent. Yeah. And then the deacon or the celebrant in the absence of a deacon dismisses the people with the words that are printed here on page 366. Whether we're going forth in the name of Christ, whether we're going in peace to love and serve the Lord, whether we're going forth rejoicing in the power of the Spirit, um, or whether we are simply blessing the Lord, the reply is all the same. Thanks be to God. And so the last corporate words that are spoken by the people are words of praise and thanksgiving. Thanks be to God. Or in the time from the Easter Vigil to the day of Pentecost, uh, Alleluia, Alleluia may be added. Thanks yes, be to God. Alleluia, but Alleluia. But that's the thing about the Alleluias is that, that they're so um, prevalent that oftentimes it doesn't matter if it is the Easter Vigil through the day of Pentecost. They continue to hang around. Yeah, they do sometimes. They're, they're kind of, they're, they are loitering Alleluias. <laughs> <laughs> that is the name of a band the loitering hallelujahs uh 
And with that, we have completed our exploration of one of the Eucharistic prayers in the Book of Common Prayer. Now, it should also be at least mentioned that there are other Eucharistic prayers that have been authorized for use by general convention um, that are contained in texts such as Enriching Our Worship. Um that are available that can be used. Um, so there, there are other options out there. If you are the bold type that would rather have a choose-your-own-adventure Eucharistic prayer, then there is the option of what we call Rite 3 that allows you to create your own Eucharistic prayer. But in such actions, I advise you to take the guidance of your bishops uh, who need to look over such things and even need to authorize such things if you're going to write your own Eucharistic prayers. And again, those aren't to be used on principal Sunday services. But you can use enriching your worship, enriching our worship, if you so choose. That is a supplement that is available to you with prayers that many find uplifting and encouraging. And I will point out... um, this is not the time we don't miss mix and match, right? We don't take this little portion from Eucharistic prayer A and this little portion from enriching our worship and this little portion from Eucharistic prayer D and put them all together to make some kind of Frankenstein's monster of Eucharist. No, Franken liturgies should be avoided at all costs. Um, keep your intent and keep your thinking pure. And if you are going to use bits of a prayer, then just use the whole prayer. Yeah. Um, and remember, we have we have this book of common prayer to unite us all in commonality, to unite us all in communion. So oh, there's my two cents. And and with your two cents, I think we have sense enough to call a halt to this episode. And so, <laughs> Father Joshua, may the peace of the Lord be always with you. And also with you. 